Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, so last night, me and Joanne went to Santa Monica. Uh, I got a, a text from my niece, who lives in New York City, just graduated high school, and she was in Hawaii. I saw the pictures on Facebook, and she says, Uncle Steven, I'll be in, in Santa Monica. So we drove down, you know, just to say hi and hang out, and it really got me thinking, you know, how growing up in New Jersey, I, I, I would go to the beach in the summer. And out here, it's so different because the, it's always warm out here. So we really don't appreciate the beaches. And given, I mean, the beaches here are from Burbank are 20, 23 miles from me to Santa Monica. And it's pretty crazy because I went down and it was a good feel. And it, it's funny because I'm sitting there thinking that, you know, this week is the 4th of July weekend and it doesn't feel like it. But growing up back there, you knew whenever it was Memorial Day or 4th of July or Labor Day, because one, you'd hear a bunch of Springsteen on the radio, and two, you'd go to the beach, and it was a three-day weekend. So, you know what? This I'm going to be listening to Independence Day a lot this weekend. I'm going to be listening to Fourth of July, uh, Sandy this weekend. I'm going to be listening to some Jersey music because every every Fourth of July, I miss I miss it. Anyway, we have a great guest today. We we have a guy who was. Uh, played a lot of music in New Jersey, and uh, I was lucky enough to get in touch with him because he knows my friend Rich Redman. My guest is John Eddy. How you doing, John? Hey, brother. How you doing? Good, man. It's a, it's, a, it's a small world how things happen, how just, you know, I was at a party with Rich, and we were just talking about something, and I think you texted him, and I went, holy crap. I said, I remember seeing his name at the bar called Backstreets in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, right near where I grew up. Absolutely, that was the first. That was the first place we ever played, Backstreet Cafe. Yep. Now, now, when did you start getting into music? I mean, when did you decide this was going to be your career? And were you, I know you were originally from Virginia, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I moved to uh, New Jersey when I was around eleven or twelve, I guess it was. And uh, and my family, my my sisters, all still live in Virginia. That they still live down south, but. Uh, we moved up there, and then my family moved back down. But I, I consider New Jersey where I grew up. So yeah. Now, what part of New Jersey? Uh, Maple Shade, Cherry Hill area. Right. I'm a Cherry Hill guy. I, I, I'm Cherry Hill East, class of '82. I went to Cherry Hill West, but I dropped out at, at ninth and a half grade. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I didn't. I never. I never graduated. But I, I was in Cherry Hill West for a year and a half. Now, when did you start playing music? You know what, probably around the same time. I mean, I always wanted, you know, actually, I originally wanted to be a priest. And I think it was just because they were the center of attention when I was growing up, you know. And then and then when my sisters, then I noticed, like, there was pictures on my sister's bedroom walls of, like, the Beatles and the monkeys. And, you know, I was like, oh, maybe that's what I want to do. So I, got, I, got, I was always, I kind of just always wanted to do it. You know, I soon, after, I, after I realized I wasn't going to be, cut out for the priesthood I, I kind of concentrate on like trying to be a rock and roll singer so what did when did you decide i mean was it what how did you start playing and when did you decide that it's going to be your career i mean you said you you saw it but to make sure you make it happen is is a hard thing to do yeah well i mean like that's i mean like pretty early there's pictures of me in you know fourth grade with you know standing on the porch with you know, a toy drum set and a, and a guitar, like three, me and three of my friends pretending we're in a band. And then when I got, when I, when I moved to New Jersey is when I first started, uh, you know, teaching myself to play guitar and finding the other kids in school that did it. And then that's when we had our basement bands and stuff like that. And we started, by the time I was in ninth grade, we were playing the, uh, 
you know, the, the high school dances and stuff like that, the battle of the bands. So pretty early, pretty early on, I knew this was what I was going to be doing, you know. So as you're growing with the band, yeah. when do you sit there and start to say, you know, we got to start playing the bars and how old were you? Because I don't think if you're eight, well, no, I think the drinking age was 18 in New Jersey then. Yeah, actually, well, there, there was, like I said, then there's, there was, there's big gaps in this. I like, uh, like I said, I, we were playing like the high school dances and stuff like that. And then I dropped out of school and then my family moved down to Florida and then I stayed in New Jersey as a, my, my I left home when I was 15. So I was kind of like, you know, an after school special type of thing. <laughs> and, uh, it was, so I had like two years where I was pretty much a derelict kid, ne'er do well. And then I joined the Navy for two years. And then when I got out of the Navy, uh, I was 19, and um, and that's when I that's when we I put the band together. Like, you know, uh, when we started, you know, practicing doing it was doing original songs, and and that's when we started playing the the place you were talking about, Backstreets, was our first place that gave us a shot. Okay, now now how did you find the guys in your band? I mean, because you probably you said you've been away, and you know, you play with guys when you were in high school and stuff like that. But were they the same guys or? Uh, no, no, no. It's, and yeah, that's weird. It's like, it's like, uh, I was, when I got out of the Navy, I got a job working at Peaches Record Store. I remember Peaches. Yeah, on Hanfield Road. With I the worked. crates. They had crates up front. Yep, yep, they had crates. <laughs> and I, and I, and I worked it behind the tape counter and I worked there and you meet musicians coming in and, 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 you know, goes around. I met my bass player there. He worked there too. And then, uh, my drummer, we went. We went to some party, and there was a, and he was playing in a just a little pickup band in the basement, and and, and me and him, I reached out to him, and just like that, just met my guitar player. Remember Emerald City? Remember oh yeah, yeah, of course, because it originally was the Latin Casino. Exactly. Yeah, I have pictures of my mom at the Latin Casino going to see Bobby Darren and Tom Jones. That was a, <laughs> that was like a. So uh, we back then it was new wave music. They had new wave Thursdays. And I met uh, my guitar player. Uh, he was a bar back at Emerald City, and you know, just you know, just find you kind of feel each other out. You know what I mean? You you find each other. Now, how did you come up with the name? Front Street Runners. Yeah. Well, that was because when I had a '57 Chevy back when I was 15, 16 years old, and uh, what happened was when I said earlier my family moved to Florida, I moved down with them for uh, just for the summer. To enough, enough to get my license down there because you could drive and when you're younger in, in Florida than you could in New Jersey and I got I bought a 57 Chevy and when I came back like I said when I left home at 15 I drove a 57 Chevy back to New Jersey and in Front Street Front Street and Delaware Avenue in uh, Philadelphia they used to have the drag races you used to go up there and all everybody with their hot cars and you would you would come up whoever you came up against you would you know race mine really wasn't much of a racer it looked cool but it was a, it was a, it didn't it was it had the stand you know stock engine and so it was mine just looked good so i never really raced but i just hung out up there so that's cool i remember i remember front gallery as yeah, so i say oh there's a drag races over there you know your parents be like be careful don't go over there's drag races oh it was a th it was like right out of greece i'm talking it was like <laughs> like everyone would go there on friday and saturday nights and you'd race on front street and delaware avenue and they would if the cops would come and you'd see kids running for their cars and they would turn the hydrants on to wet down the street so you couldn't race. 
it was it was it was, the, it was the, someone uh, someone should have documented it. I, I guess they don't do it anymore because I think they redeveloped it and there's all clubs and stuff. Oh down. yeah, it's crazy now. I was I saw it. I was like, wow, this isn't the same area. So yeah, it used to be. It used to be warehouses. I mean, it used to be like it, it was the you know it was the the dead part of the city. It was it was, it was abandoned. You know. Right. So now now you start your band starts playing. When do you start getting hot in the Jersey area? I mean, because there was. You know, and what were some of the clubs you played back then? Were you guys around the time of Tony Martz, or was that already closed? No, we, I think we played Tony Martz. I believe we did. Um, yeah, you know, it's been so many. We've played everywhere, first of all. And it's like, I, I, I know Tony Martz because I know it was in Eddie and the Cruisers. Right. So I'm pretty sure we played there anyway, because I was around that whole summer, then the summers before that. Um, but... Yeah, we started we started building ourselves. Like I said, the first place we played was Backstreets. Actually, the first place we were booked to play Backstreets, and we it was I think it was Christmas Eve, and this was our first gig, and we we're all excited. You know, we got this gig, and it was snowing, and and we and like you know we go there with our gear, and they. They canceled the night without telling us <laughs> the place was closed. So our first gig, we actually never even played. But then they gave us a gig later on. But then we started playing in Philadelphia. And we started, we played uh, the Hot Club in Philadelphia. David Carroll, who became my manager, uh, was the owner. And he started the, the Hot Club, which was the coolest, really, club in Philadelphia. It's like where Elvis Costello first played when he came to America. I mean, our first gig at the Hot Club, was opening for the cure okay. so it was yeah it was it was a that's when the cure was a three-piece and we were a three-piece and that's really why we got the gig because it was just an easy set change you know and uh it's uh it, it, but david became my manager and then we started playing the other clubs in philadelphia so we actually first started making our name in philadelphia and south jersey before we hit the shore uh, hit, and you know that that's the weird thing too about you talking about you know Fourth of July weekend. Now when I was when I grew up in Virginia, we called it going to the beach, and then you move to New Jersey, and it's going to the shore. Right. No one says going to the beach; you're going down the shore, and it's like so that was, and it was weird. It took us a while before we really. I mean, when I say a while, like maybe a year and a half or something before we really, you know, reached out and started playing the South Jersey Shore clubs, you know, Wildwood and stuff like that, and then. And then we made our way up to Asbury Park, and that's when we got into the whole uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, music scene, you know. Yeah. How, now, how did you get into that? Cause I know briefly played with Bruce. How, how did how did you meet Bruce? It was just from playing in Asbury Park, or how did that whole relationship start? You know what? Um, he had he had a woman who who was very close to him and still is, and you know that that worked with him uh, by the name of Obi. And Obi saw us play, and she told Bruce about us. And we, so we were playing a, a, a club in Red Bank, New Jersey. It was actually Clarence Clemens had opened a club called Big Man's West. And we were playing uh, Easter, it was Easter Sunday. And it was our first, it was our first gig playing up there. Obi had gotten us the gig. It was Easter Sunday. And um, there was, if I'm not mistaken, 11 people in the bar. <laughs> And Bruce Springsteen came, and he was one of the eleven people. 
And he got up at the end of the show and jumped on stage with us and played like a half hour of songs. And and then the next week we played there and there was, you know, 400 people there, or whatever. <laughs> like because Bruce had showed up. So that started getting our name out there. When Bruce, when Bruce, like you know, gave us his blessing and said, you know, these these guys don't suck. It started spreading our word out outside the Philadelphia area. Now, as you're as you're gigging and you're getting better, when do you start getting record deals, or when do people start talking to you about records? And I know you made a video and uh, you know the 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 song uh, Jungle Boy and stuff like that. When did that all start happening? And how I mean, how did that? How did you get catapulted into getting that deal and even making a video? Because it was still a new time of videos. Yeah, well, that um, that came about. We it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like so, like once we started, you know, uh, expanding our following uh, to the to North Jersey and Asbury Park and the and and the whole Bruce Springsteen connection, we started getting more interest uh, from the record companies because it, it kind of it, think of it. This was right before Born USA came out, and Bruce was really, you know, he he would come out and play with us you know, a number of times and, and we became the headlining act at the Stone Pony every Friday night. So we were we were like, you know, packing the pony every Friday night for a whole summer. And it was almost like, you know, what happened after Nirvana when all the grunge bands got signed. You know, Bruce was the biggest star in the world and they were looking for the, you know, the guy who fit the Johnny Bravo suit, and, and, and so it kind of they kind of like, you know, uh, I, I was signed up in the rush of finding the next Bruce Springsteen type of thing, you know. So, so what's that like when you get the record deal? I mean, a lot of times people say, "I wish I read the contract more." Some people say, <laughs> uh, "You know what? It was I, to be honest with you, I've I, I look, I've had the, I've had the roller coaster, rocky road record deal thing. I've had I've had three record deals, and you know what, you meet good people along the way and you meet shitty people along the way and, you know, good things happen to you and bad things happen to you. And, like, you know, I, I, depending on what day you, you talk to me, I'll say the record business sucked or it was, like, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me. So but the first deal I got was with CBS and Sony and it's, like, um, I, same thing. We started to get an interest, so we played a showcase in New York City and... Uh, you know, a lot of the record companies came out, and actually Warner Brothers and CBS both offered me a deal that night, and it was, it was exciting, it was like you, you know, you go from thinking, wow, you know, banging your head against the wall, and, you know, I was 24 years old, and you, you go, you go thinking that you have a chance, and you go from not having a chance to having a chance, and then all of a sudden it became this, uh, actually became like a little bit of a, uh, you know, a feeding frenzy. Once Warner Brothers and Columbia got involved and and offered me a deal, then everybody was offering you a deal just because they don't want to think. A, they even if they don't like you, they offer you a deal because they don't want be able to say that they missed out if you know I, I broke big. You know what I mean? And uh, so, but I ended up, and I ended up going with Sony because Joe McEwen who signed me. You know, I, to be honest with you, both him and Michael Hill at Warner Brothers, I became good friends with both of them, and I'm still friends with both of them. And uh, I ended up, it was a heartbreaking decision because I, I loved Michael and I loved Joe, but I, 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 you know, I 
the one thing I could say, I bought her light hook, line, and sinker because they both offered me the same exact deal. And uh, Sony and Columbia, it was where Bruce and Bob Dylan and the Clash were. So it was like I kind of, I just kind of had more Sony records in my collection than I had Warner Brothers records, you know. So, uh, so I signed with Sony and, and I, I made two records for them and. Yeah, they did the whole thing. They did the videos and you know and all that. But what happened is once I got again, and if, if you know if, if I get boring, just shut me up. Oh no no no! I love I, lo- I love I love music stories. Yeah. So no, but what happened was with me is like I was I, again. I had done this. David, at, you know who who was my manager who had got me to that point. When the record companies got involved, they start going, "Oh, you need a big time manager." And, and you know we're be, we're going to be putting millions of dollars into you, and you know so uh, David graciously let Tommy Matola come in and become my manager, and David, you know, acted as a consultant. And, he, and it, same thing, uh, I'm still dear friends with David, and uh, love him dearly, and we're close, and we're like family. And uh, uh, but Tommy Matola became my manager before my first record came out, and then. You know, there was whole big hype. They're getting ready to release my record. And, it's, and you know, and, and I'm believing in all the hype. And I'm believing I'm going to be, you know, the next Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, they're saying, you're going to be doing this, you're going to be doing that. And then right before my record came out, there was a payola scandal. And uh, all the record companies were involved in it. So they had been used to getting their records played using independent promoters on, on radio stations. And as my record came was getting released, all of a sudden they had to stop using independent promoters. There's a whole book written called Hitman by Frederick Dan, and it's very interesting. It's like and it, it details that whole time that went down and how it was like it was like the first big payola scandal since the fifties. And so all the records that came out that year, um, you know, it, it was a whole new ball game, and they were figuring out how to get records on the radio without spending money on uh, independent promotion people who at that time were being accused of spending using money to get songs on the radio so anyway so my, my record got tied up in that and uh, it but it still did respectable and then the second record did okay and, and you know it's that's where the roller coaster starts now now, now where, where, what was it like shooting that video because they had you wearing the tight jeans and dancing did you well, the tight jeans were mine. Okay, <laughs> the dancing was mine. I like. I, I. It's. It's weird. I'll tell you. You know, you're a comedian. This is a story that you'll appreciate. And it's probably there's a couple of things in my life, career, career, career decisions that were the worst decisions. Okay, I you got. You got to tell me them. I want to hear these. <laughs> All right. Well, this one. Well, you'll appreciate this the most. I think. So I'm getting ready to do my video and they're sending me all these directors saying they want to produce your video they want to direct your video and and like you said it was the early years of you know it wasn't the super early years of mtv but it wasn't you know it wasn't the 90s either you know and um so the the person that i wanted to direct the video and who i mean who one of the people that uh, submitted and wanted to direct it, and I got to talk to him on the phone, and and I was, I, it was the stupidest move I ever made. 
was I turned down Christopher Guest directing my video. Oh my God, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was like, so, and because, and, be, and like, I mean, it wasn't just me going, fuck that, I don't want to work Christopher Guest because I'm a huge Christopher Guest fan. What, what it was is that he had this whole concept video and it was going to be, you know, like really poking fun at MTV and stuff like that. And the, my sensibilities now, and even then, I, there was a part of me that wanted to embrace it, but the record company was afraid that it was going to go too far in one direction. And and But I would say that's probably the biggest mis- one of the biggest mistakes in my life. So who ended up directing it? Um, Jim Yukich directed it. And Jim Yukich was a big director. He did all the Phil Collins stuff. And and the thing is, the video is kind of what and what the video ended up being is not what the original vision of the video was. It the original video was this crazy. They were it was a high tech thing that they built this like gyroscope camera system around a small little stage, and they were supposed to just while I was performing the song, these cameras were taking millions of images of me and it was supposed to do this thing where it's like pixelated da, 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 and it's 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 hard doing to at the very end of the video you see glimpses of what it was but his original vision was much more jarring and artistic and again they were the record company was looking at and going like you know we're trying to to establish this if this is this kid's first record, his first song, and you have a video that is moving so fast you can't really see him. You know what I'm saying? So it kind of like it kind of got pulled back from its original from its original concept. So um, I, it, it, so a, a lot of times in my life in my my career, it's been like that. It's like the the original vision starts out good, and then by the time everyone gets their feet gets their um, fingers in it. Hold on, I got a call coming on that I'll turn off. Once everybody gets their uh, fingers into it, 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 they fuck it up. Well, I, I hope I'm allowed to say these. Oh yeah, yeah, it's fine. Now I, I gotta do. I, I played your video uh, the other night because every like every once in a while, my girlfriend, my girlfriend does. Uh, she's a regular in background for this one show, uh, and so if she's working late on a set Friday night, you know, I have a few beers and I, I go live on a. Uh, on uh, Facebook, and I, I play videos off the off my laptop, and we played yours the other night. People dug it. Ah, uh, well, now I bet you're being kind. No, I said, I said, guys, because there's some of the people are from the Philly area, so they remembered it as much. So now, now, so you're sitting there. So the the video does that. The song Junk Boy does pretty well. Yeah, yeah, it, it did, but again, it was more regionally like it, it went to number 52 on the Hot 100, and it stayed there for like nine weeks. So it it was like. Back to the payola thing, the 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 president of Sony at the time took me in his office, and he was like, and he said, "Listen, you should be very proud." He said, "We're figuring out how to get songs on the radio again after the whole, you know, because we we have a lot of restrictions." And he goes, "The fact that your song got to number fifty-two without independent promotion was like he said was quite a a, a thing." He said, had this, had your record come out last year, it would have been the number one record just because that's what they did. They would, you know, hire these independent promotion people who through whatever means got radio stations across the country to play whatever record they wanted them to. 
You know what I mean? So it's like, so he said the fact that I got to 52 is pretty much on the merits of the song, you know? Now, off that record, you started to tour a lot, right, with, with Seeger and the Kinks? or Yeah, yeah, did tours with this Bob Seeger. Like, over the two records on Sony, we did tours with the Bengals, uh, Bob Seeger, the Kinks, uh, and, you know, one-offs here and there. We opened up the Amnesty International show, uh, which was, like, you know, U2 and the police and blah, blah, blah. So, like, there was, like, yeah, there was cool opportunities, yeah. Now, did you ever get to play the Spectrum? No. That sucks, because that's where I, you know, that's where I saw a lot of my shows growing up. I would have loved to. Nah, the biggest place we ever played in Philly was the Man Music Center. Oh, the Man was good. It was the outside there in the summer. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, but we got to play the Tower Theater, which was another, you know, goal of mine. So we played places that I liked, but I never got to play a Spectrum, and I would have liked to. Well, what was, what was it like, you know, opening for Seeger and Kinks and all those guys? Because they're big venues. I mean, you know, coming from the clubs in New Jersey... You know, then to get to those venues, what's it like? What's the energy like? I mean, what's the feeling when you sit there and go, "Holy crap!" There's a bunch of people here. You know what? It was. It was. It, it's very to me. To be honest with you, I actually like doing those kind of shows better than smaller, intimate ones because you can't really, you know, you don't you don't really see the audience, but you can feel them and you feed off them. And and believe me, it's it's you know, Bob Seger's crowd was very was very good to us. Um, but the Kinks crowd was, they're tough. The Kinks fans are, are diehard Kinks fans, and we had our work cut out every night, you know. And it was weird. There was a, there was a thing, like, you know, uh, with, when before we got the first Kinks, we did two tours with the Kinks. Before we got the first tour, I had to sign a, 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 a non-disclosure, not non-disclosure, this thing saying I wouldn't sue Ray Davies if he kicked me off the tour because apparently some other band that they had booked, uh, when he finally saw them, he didn't like them or didn't think they fit. And then they had built their whole marketing campaign behind, you know, doing this tour at the Kinks, and so it got into a legal thing. So I had to sign this paper saying that if any time he wants to kick me off the tour, that, um, you know, I won't sue him, you know. (laughs) And then exactly, uh, so the uh, so so we got through that little aspect of it. But I remember once we were playing a, a, in Boston at the Wang Center, and we actually came out on stage. And we hadn't even, we hadn't even played a note yet. We were just you know getting behind the microphones. And there's like a guy like in, and it's funny now because I was young, you know, I was young then, and. And there was a guy like in his 40s who was obviously a big King fan with his wife. And he looked like a respectable businessman. And before we even sang anything, he's like, you suck, fuck you, bring on the Kings. And I'm like, dude, you're like 50, calm down, give us a shot, you know. It was like, so it was was pretty interesting, like, you know, you actually earn your stripes when you go out on tour opening up for, uh, you know, people who have, these die-hard, you know, followings. Now you said, you know, you the two albums came out, and they said that's when the roller coasters started. What were the roller coasters that started? Well, I mean, just like just just the you, the disappointments and the and the uh, the highs and the lows. That's all. You know, it's 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 you start off believing the not the hype or anything as much as you know the dream that you had when you were a fifteen-year-old kid wanted to be a rock and roll singer. You know, you don't, 
you, you think it's going to be, you know, what you imagined it. And it's a lot of work. And and sometimes things work out and sometimes things don't. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. When I was making the second record, I actually wanted the, the record to be... Uh, I was very interested in working with this guy, Pete Anderson, who produced Dwight Yoakam and was Dwight Yoakam's guitar player. And... You know, it was the direction I felt most comfortable in. I've like, like I live in Nashville now, and I was raised on, you know, that kind of music. And it was I wasn't going to make like a hardcore country record or anything like that. But I wanted it to have elements of the fact that I sit and, you know, bang an acoustic guitar and then put a band behind me. And so I actually ended up doing demos with Pete Anderson. I was like really looking forward to to, or doing the record with him. And then all of a sudden, Tommy Mottola is like, my manager, he's like, oh, you're not doing a country record. You're going to go work with John Mellencamp's band. And I was, and I didn't have the, you know, the confidence in my own vision to say, no, I really want to do this. I was like, I was like, they, they're saying, you do this and again, you'll be rich and famous. You do this and you'll be a rock star. And I was kind of like, I, I wish I had a little more, uh, you know, uh, confidence in myself and saying, no, I want to do this. Because, like, I ended up doing the kind of records I wanted with Pete Anderson. I ended up doing them, like, you know, 10 years later, you know. So we ended up doing the record with Mellencamp's band. Then they didn't like the results. The, they weren't 100% happy with those results. And so then they had me working with T-Bone Walk who worked with Hall and & Oates and Elvis Costello. And again, through all these things, even though there's, you know, negatives to it, T-Bone ended up becoming one of my, you know, dearest friends. But the record itself, it's again, it almost goes like to the Jungle Boy video. There were so many different, you know, cooks on the second album that it was very Frankenstein-like. It was made, like one song sounds like it wants to be this, and the next song has drum machine on it. And the next, It's a very 80, I can't listen to the record, put it there. It's a very 80-sounding record, you know. Now, now, where are you living at this time? Are you still living in the South Jersey area, or, or where? Oh, I, you know what? I was splitting time between uh, South Jersey and L.A. I definitely went to L.A. for a while. I definitely, you know, you know, was was trying to be a rock star out in LA for a couple of years. I lived in a I lived in a guest house up in Tobago Canyon. So now, where were you hitting in LA? When you were were you gigging out here? Or were you just trying to network? Or were you playing gigs in the LA? Or were you hitting the Sunset Strip? Or what were you doing? Uh, no, I, you know, I was writing out here. I was writing out here and and pretending I was a rock star. <laughs> I wasn't doing. I, it was like I love LA though. To be honest with you, I really do. Like it's, but I lived up. Like I said, I lived up in Tobago Canyon. And I was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a different time for me, but it was cool. I lived in, I lived in a hotel for like six months. I was spending a lot of money that I didn't have. I know that. So now, now, what happened? So then, your your record, your the deal ends with Columbia, Sony. Well, that was so okay. So then, again, Tommy Mottola was my manager. Then he becomes the president of Sony, and. You know, he tells me, he goes, listen, he goes, you can stay on the label if you want. He goes, but, you know, you're in, you know, according to your contract, you're into Sony for $1.8 million. You're going to have to sell, you know, a million copies of your next record before you even start seeing another penny. And he goes, he goes, Electra Records, 
who had had been one of the one of the original uh, labels that wanted to sign me, besides Columbia and Warner Brothers, they still want you. You know, you can have a deal with Electra, and you can be starting from, you know, ground zero again, and and so on. So I ended up going to Electra Records and doing a deal with them. So it's got to that's, that's got to start taxing on you, though. Well, the Electra Electra was the big nightmare. Electra was the Electra was the big nightmare, and it's so weird because it started off, you know, uh, it started off very promising. Bob Krasnow was the president of Electra Records, and I was his signing. Howard Thompson was my A and R guy, and all you know. And Howard, love Howard. He was very artistic and very supportive of my thing. But I was Bob Krasnow signing. He had been originally wanted to sign me, like I said before, when I did the records with Sony, and then we were all still surprised that he wanted to, you know, still have me because I turned him down. But he sold us that you know he still wanted me, and and we did a deal with him, and and we were wide open, you know, like the, it was a wide open budget. The album ended up costing four hundred thousand dollars. Worked with David Briggs, uh, who produced all the great Neil Young records, and again, we even on the roller coasters of good and bad times, same thing, David. And his wife Bettina became very close friends of mine, and we made a record that cost four hundred thousand dollars to make. Uh, every bit of it, every week, the company, the record company, was getting updates and and songs sent to them, and they were saying, "This is exactly what we want John to be doing. This is this. We can't tell you, you know, we're so happy." Blah 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 blah. So it's getting. Uh, I, I had a tragedy that happened. We finished the record. I had a tragedy that happened. A dear friend of mine was a New York City police officer, and uh, he actually had a band. And I brought him out to LA and got him to sing on this Electra record. He got he got to sing background vocals on a couple of songs, and you know he visited me out in LA making the record. And he was he was you know one of my best friends and when we finished the record I came back to Jersey and we we went out one night in New York and it was him me and my friend Mark and we you know we were just going out as guys going to bars looking for you know girls and uh, we uh, came upon a, a, a robbery at an ATM and uh, there was a shootout, and my friend Keith, the the police officer, was killed in front of me. And uh, and so this was right before my record was supposed to be coming out. Um, and so went into uh, you know that was a huge, huge, obviously you know horrifying thing to go through. Um, and I was I was really looking forward to getting back into the grind of doing my music and getting out there and, and getting this horrible, horrible incident, you know, in, in my rear view, to put it, to, you know, I needed to, I needed to get back to work just to, to, to uh, you know, recover, you know. Right. And so a couple of weeks later, after this, after my friend had been murdered, 
I get a call from from Bob Krasnow's assistant and saying, Bob would like you to come into the city. He wants to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And again, I'd been through uh, the roller coaster, so I knew the business. I had a bad feeling about this. I said, something's not right. And I called David Briggs, the producer, and I said, Bob wants me to come into the city, and he... Uh, he, uh, um, I said, I said, I don't feel good about this. And Dave's like, no, John, you're just, you're just, you know, don't worry about it. He just wants to talk to you about what the next single is. I'm sure that's all it is. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, driving to New York, going to his office and he's, he's standing there looking out the window and he's like, I was like, hey, and he, I, he goes, he goes, oh, good to see you. I said, how are things? He goes, he goes, oh, I'm going to see Eddie Murphy shoot a movie later today. We're doing the soundtrack. And I said, that's that's fun. I said, that sounds fun. And he goes, how are you doing? I said, well, I said, I don't know if you heard. I said, I'm not, you know, I had a, my friend got murdered a couple of weeks ago, and I was there when it happened. And I said, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with it and he goes he goes yeah he goes i heard about that which is going to make this conversation even harder he goes he says he goes you made a really good mainstream rock and roll record that i don't know how to market i'm going to drop you and we're not going to release your record man exactly and i went and i, I had gone like i said i had just gone through losing my friend so in the scheme of things, this was minor. And I went to him, I said, you know what, Bob? I came in here, what you're saying now. Talk to my lawyers. And I walked out of the office. And that, and then I, that started a, basically a two-year battle trying to get off the label. Because they wouldn't release me, and they wouldn't pay me what the contract said if they didn't release me. So it was a two-year battle, and I finally ended up walking away two years later with nothing. And it's just... Uh, it was a, that was the, that was the low point of my career for sure. So you're going through all this now. Now, how do you end up in Nashville? How does that all how does that all start? That's years later, and that's a high point. So let's jump ahead to that. Yeah, I'm here. I know because I know because no because you, you you've worked and you've worked, and I know you're in Nashville, and you you're you know. And what year did you go to Nashville? Well, the first time that's what I'm saying. So what happened was I was kind of like I was kind of probably had you know you know post traumatic stress, and I and I and I was. Probably I was at my low point of self-esteem after all this, so I kind of like really I stopped playing, I stopped everything, and was really just trying to regroup and figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I was actually rescued by by fans. I was playing shitty gigs, and you know, for seventy-five dollars a night, and I started thinking like, oh, well, maybe I was kind of like I came up with the Kickstarter thing before there was a Kickstarter. I kind of started thinking like. Wow, if you know, maybe if I go to a hundred of my fans and get a thousand dollars each from them, I'll have a hundred thousand dollars to go make a record. And what happened was, I was playing this shitty gig. Like I said, it was a Thursday night. Where at? Uh, I think it was in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Okay, so you were okay. You're, okay. Yeah, yeah, and and again, it was acoustic. It wasn't even a full band. It was like we just I was doing gigs just to to stay alive, and. Uh, a fan, a friend who's now become a friend came up to me and he was like, dude, when are you going to make another record? And I was like, I was like, oh, and I had just come up with this idea of 
getting a group of fans to fan fund it. And I said, well, it's funny you should ask. I said, I'm looking for investors to, he goes, I'm in. And he ended up, he ended up paying for most of the record himself. And that's the first time I went down to Nashville. I just, I worked uh, with T-Bone who had worked on my last second record for Sony. And we went down and we did, we did like five or six songs the first time down there. And then, so I got a taste of Nashville and I started putting out my own records. And then, and then I, I, uh, I did a record for Lost Highway, which was part of Universal. That was a co-venture between, I had started a label called Lost, Lost American Thrill Show. And they did a co-venture with me. And uh, on that record, I had a song called Low Life. And a friend of mine got it to Kid Rock. And Kid Rock cut it. And that enabled, that gave me the money and success. And uh, it kicked open the door to me moving to Nashville to full time. Because I, all of a sudden I had an in. I was a songwriter that a major artist had cut a song by. Now, it's weird because I've heard that. I've heard like, you know, everyone's moved to Nashville now because, you know, I know when rec kids get out of music school, they know they can go down there and work, you know, they can sell songs. But not, when you said you were self-producing your own albums, how were they selling? Well, it's weird. That's the other thing, you know, it's, it's something I learned. Uh, I, I, there's things I wish I'd learned earlier. First of all, I wish I'd gone to Nashville in my 20s, you know, because... As much as I do love performing, and I and I've always had great bands behind me, and and I've always enjoyed performing. In fact, we got signed off of live shows. Not we'd never done a demo tape to like send in direct. When I first got signed, it wasn't off of a demo or anything like that. It was because of our live shows, and we were known as a good live act. And um, uh, so what happened was when I has was doing my own records, all of a sudden I realized you make your own record, you you make all the money from record one as opposed to, you know, having to go through the record company where they give you a dollar a record, you know? So all of a sudden I, I, I would sell 5,000, 10,000 copies of records I produced myself and make more money than I ever made doing it with a record label. So, so that was one thing, but the, but when Kid Rock cut my song for um, Low Life, that was the first time I'd ever had a song on a record that sold millions of copies, and that's where you make your money. It's like it's like, and so here's here's Kid Rock going out playing my song, and it's on an album that sells five million copies. It's 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 a game changer in terms of of what you're able to do in the in the industry, you know. And all of a sudden, then your name gets out there. Then I got to write a song for Sammy Hagar and and that got me a publishing deal in Nashville. So I moved the sec the, the when I moved I moved to Nashville in two thousand nine. And again, I'm an I'm an an old guy in that game too. It's like even though I'm behind the scenes, you know, the kids and the the writers in Nashville now are in their early twenties, you know. But um I got to write with some good people and I got some I had a song cut by that I wrote with Brantley Gilbert that went top ten country. And so I, I got I got to go places I and it was all because Kid Rock cut the song. Now so Kid Rock just found it. Now have you written have you written other songs for him? I've written other songs. Uh, he he takes the way Bobby Kid Rock works, 
at least in terms of me, like I'd written some songs and send them to him, and then he puts his spin on them, and he adds verses and and lines and and musical things that, in fact, and like it's weird. I say this all the time. As a writer, I've always written like, ooh, I'm gonna write a song. Like I'm a Rod Stewart fan, you know, old Rod Stewart fan. So I, you know, I'll write a song like, you know, I want to try to write a song that's kind of like Maggie May. But then I make it my own, and it's about me, and it's about whatever's going on in my life. But I use a template saying like, oh, you know, I want mandolins, I want acoustic guitars, but big drums, the way an old Rod Stewart record is. So it's weird when I wrote Low Life, I kind of in my head. I kind of wanted it to be a kid rock song. And um, so it's weird. It's like, you know, when he did cut it, it was the way I heard it in my head, much closer than when I did it myself, you know? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So like he did two other songs of mine, a song called 40 and a song called Happy New Year. But again, Happy New Year, I actually had written and sent to him as a demo. And then he, uh, you know, he liked it, but he wanted to, he wanted me to come up and we went to his house and we, we, we moved it around so it was more of a Kid Rock song on his record. Now, when people contact you to, um, you know, for you to write for them, you said, you know, you, you think you have your, what you want it to be like, but... How do you sit there and formulate what you think they want it to be like? I mean, because, you know, it's like anything. You know, you're writing a song from you, your brain. I mean, it's like, do you, do you listen to them and just, I mean, or, and how does that work? Well, Nashville's, Nashville's very different in terms of writing for other artists. Like I said, the, the songs that Kid Rock cut were songs that I had originally written just for myself, not thinking, you know, they would ever get. Like I, like, like I said, even though I had Kid Rock in mind when I wrote Low Life, I had no way of getting it to him. It wasn't until a friend of mine got it to him, you know, without my knowledge. It was, it was, you know, same thing. There's been guardian angels throughout my career. My friend Henry Vaccaro, who got the song to Kid Rock, if it wasn't for him, I would have never, never been able to move to Nashville. I would have never met Rich Redman. <laughs> um, so it's like, uh, it's weird when, when when Kid Rock first cut Low Life, he called my he had never met me yet, and he had called he called my uh, he got my number and called my answering machine, and he said, John Eddie, I just cut Low Life and it's a motherfucker. I'm gonna put some bells and whistles on it so you can buy yourself a house. And he hung up the phone. And I and damn it, if I didn't wasn't able to buy a house because he cut <laughs> Low Life. And it's funny. He it's like he 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 told he he tells that story like he totally he him cutting that song bought me a house. So you know it's it's pretty crazy. But then when you move to Nashville, then and you sign a publishing deal, then they then then it becomes it's very weird. I had always just been a guy banging on a guitar in my bedroom writing songs that mean something to me. When you when you go to Nashville, all of a sudden it becomes a business. They it's like the old you know. Uh, Brill building type of thing, where they they um, put you in a room with you know one writer, two writers, whatever, and they say, okay, write a song, <laughs> and then and you look at each other. It was awkward the first couple of times they did it, but then you kind of get how to do it. And it's like, so I definitely have two types of songs. I write. I write songs that that mean something to me, that are personal and that are 
that and then there's songs I write that are I they're just as valid songs but they're more like okay what's who's cutting now like oh you know Keith Urban's cutting you know let's let's try to write a song that Keith Urban will like you know what I mean so it, it there's definitely different different uh you know ways to go about it now you you know now for your own music so I know you're on your website people it's uh, johneddy.com it's J O H N of course E D D I E dot com. You have some samples. Take a listen to your music. Now, now, do you ever get a point where you write one of those songs now, and someone comes up and says, "I want that song"? And what happens if they want that song? Can can you still play it, or how does that work? Oh yeah, yeah. Once it, once a song is out there, it's 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 pretty much yeah that. That's kind of weird because I mean that that's basically again how the Kid Rock thing happened. He heard my song "Low Life," that was on my record, and and he actually and Forty was on that record too. So same thing. Like when he cut "Low Life," he goes, he goes, Some, he goes I'm going to do Forty too someday." Blah blah blah, and he and he ended up doing it. Um, so it's like so that's those are actually how that happened. Now the Brantley Gilbert Brantley's a big star in country music, and you know he sells out arenas himself. When I first moved to Nashville, he was the second. At the point, at the time, he wasn't signed to a major label. He had an indie indie record deal. He was a young kid, and he came to my house. It was the second uh, uh, songwriting session I'd ever done in Nashville, just as a writer. And he had, and he had just, you know, had a, a, a relationship upheaval, and we're sitting in my house, and, and it's like, you know, mid afternoon, and we wrote. A song that was basically based on his what was going on in his life and we wrote that song in three hours and you know he ends up getting a record deal he cuts it and three years later it gets to number six on the country charts and you know it was one of the most played country songs i got an award for mascap was one of the most played country songs of the year and it, we wrote it in the afternoon and he cut it three years later now it's just it's so it's just you just never know again where your where your next break is going to come from. You know. Now you're you're going back on your website. You're going back in New Jersey. Uh, you're playing the night before Fourth of July. Yeah, we're playing in uh, we're we're playing Philadelphia Sugarhouse Casino July third. Yeah, then you got Atlantic City and you got uh, Point Pleasant. We're, we're playing Borgata in Atlantic City on my birthday, July 9th. Well, happy early birthday. Thank you. So now, now when you play, do you play some of the old stuff? Because, I mean, your old stuff would be probably, you know, people from New Jersey and Philadelphia will know your old stuff more. You know what I mean? Like, as you said, you were more, you know, that's the thing. Like, when you're in a, a Philadelphia band, we remember that stuff. You know what I mean? He passed oh, yeah. away, but Robert Hazard, we remember all his songs, you know, Escalator of Life. So know now, all those guys. So now when you play... Do you mix it up with your new stuff? And do you play some of the old stuff? Do you play some of the Front Street Runner stuff when you play um, in the Philly well, we, area? Well, you know, the only there's two songs that we do Jungle Boy if I'm drunk enough. <laughs> and because it's tough. I wrote Jungle Boy when I was 17 years old. And so it's like it's kind of hard. I'm going to be 57. It's kind of hard for me to get into what the song is about, you know. But if I get drunk enough and the crowd is, like you said, a, a Philly, South Jersey crowd and someone asks for it, depending on the mood I'm in, I'll call it out and do it. We do Pretty Little Rebel, which was another song that, you know, they used to play down in Philly and Jersey. 
and we still do that. That's that's in the sets pretty regularly because that's still the close. That's still pretty close to what my music is now. I mean, my my music hasn't changed that drastically. I mean, country music now is basically '80s rock and roll with a pedal steel on it, or a fiddle, or a fiddle. I mean, it's like it's crazy. I mean, actually, you know, country music now is almost hip hop. So it's like it's you know we're, we're pretty much we're not that far off what country music became in the last couple of years. So um, we do a couple of songs from the from those days, but you know, I've 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 grown. I would say I would actually say the Lost Highway record that had Low Life and Forty on it is actually probably my most popular record now has, has surpassed the Jungle Boy era and stuff like that as far as the fans that come out to see us now, you know. Now, now, what's it like to go back? I mean, you know, you go out and you perform live, but I just said you, 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 you have the writing gig, so you don't really, I mean, you really probably don't have to really perform. Do you, but you, I've seen, you know, I've seen some of your tweets, you know, you were in, I think, Frederick, Maryland, or you were at different places. Do you just, is it just something that you just need to get out because it's, it's, still in you to play live or i mean because well, i still you know what no i mean to be honest with you it's like uh, the writing gig is you know, again it's it's the writing the writing gigs are roller coaster too like even though you know i've had i've had some a couple nice little you know hit not hits i mean like successes with like the kid rock and the brantley gilbert and and the sammy hagar it's like even though i've had these these little pops every now and then where i get a where, where i get a uh uh, you know, a, a, an upswing. There's, there's still the rest of the time. You're still, you know, swinging for the fences and striking out. So, so I, I still play because I have a band. I, I have, I feel like I have a, a responsibility to them to keep them working as much as I can without killing myself. You know, they have other gigs too. But, but you know, I mean, my bass player and guitar player. My guitar player has been with me since 1989. My bass player has been with me since 1995, and it's like so. You know, I try to keep keep income coming to those guys too. You know, so it's I, and I enjoy it still. I still enjoy it, but I don't do it as much as I used to. And and but it still brings in. You know, it still pays bills. You know. Now, when's the last time you saw Springsteen? Um, I saw him in L.A. at at the sports arena. I was out here. No, I mean, when's the last, have you seen him, like, has he been on, have you seen him and talked to him? Oh, um, talk to him was probably, at, we play these shows in New Jersey, The Light of Day. It's a benefit. It's a benefit for Parkinson's. It's a very good cause. And we play the shows for the, for the organization. And it pretty much, almost, it's been going on for a number of years now. And Bruce always comes out, so... He didn't come out this last time. I actually wasn't playing the last time either. But the year before, uh, he played and he, we came out and he came out and he actually brought me up on stage with him to to be one of the singers on Because of the Night and uh, uh, another song. I can't remember what it was. Um, but anyway, so yeah. So, I, but that's the last time I've had any you know social interaction with him. So we we have to wrap, wrap, wrap up soon, but so what sure. brings what brings you to L.A. Right? Well, why? You know, you said you're in. LA. It was just weird. I I contacted you and you were going to be in L.A. What brought you? To, what brings you to L.A.? Um, I actually I've gotten into uh, writing and creating shows for television. So I'm actually out here working on a deal and uh, pitching and uh, so yeah. 
That's the best why I'm out here. What kind of shows? Uh, well, it's weird. I, I just did a... Uh, I, I had sold a couple of reality shows, and over the years, I first started doing this back in the early 2000s, uh, like 2002, I sold a show uh, to CBS that never got made. Then I did. I created a show called Staffers, which aired on Discovery Channel, which was following the Democratic primaries with with uh, John Kerry back in that that time. Okay. That aired six episodes, uh, and then um, and now I've been. I I, I sold a, a a scripted to um, Nickelodeon this year that is just in development so it's like you know a reality show or a no that's just this one scripted well hey man if you need a writer i'm, I'm a very good writer well <laughs> dude you know what we'll have to get together and have a, a, a adult beverage and yeah, talk about that actually, a, friend, a friend of mine has been involved with a declassified ned and another show a guy i've known for a while he's one of the writers for that so Nickel- oh, Nickel- at nickelodeon yeah nickelodeon is right down the street from me because oh know- uh, yeah no i i that's I, I know i just saw a bunch of their their people at the cmt awards in nashville so so the and- tour the tour you know you're going to be in philly are you excited when you're playing philly and playing down the beach and you're there at such a good time oh yeah like exactly what you said it was very i, I liked your introduction because it's very true and it's it's the Jersey Shore is a special place in the in in the summer and especially uh, around you know the holidays like July Fourth it's there's definitely a thing that that some people get and some people don't you know what I mean it's different than going to the beach here in in California and uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, uh, special New Jersey and you're playing Jack's place in Avalon which I used to live summers sometimes in Avalon and Stone Harbor with buddies from college. Yep. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that whole area. And I think I played there back in the day too, but yeah, we're playing there. That, that just started coming back around for us too, to hit those joints. So but that's awesome though. See, it's like, it's like you'll get back to feel that energy and, and it's, it's full cycle, but now you live in Nashville, you own a house, you're, you're a successful writer and musician and a tv guy so that must be a great feeling well you know what i like i said i've i haven't had a real job since i was 19 years old so i've i've i feel like i've accomplished that and i've met a lot of great people and i've been able to live a lot of my dreams and um i i've been blessed there's you know god is definitely you know for all the for all the things that came up short uh, some things hit exactly where they were supposed to. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, and this is great. It's uh, thank you, brother. I thank you, and I hope I didn't wasn't too long winded. Oh no, what's great? No, no. What's your Twitter? Tell tell the listeners. Oh, I don't even know. People, it's just Google John Eddie Twitter. You'll find it. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's John Eddie Music or follow uh, follow uh, him on uh, Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. Uh, go to my website. Cooper. No, Talk. I definitely will. Yeah. No, I'm telling my crowd this. Oh, okay. Go go to my website, CooperTalk.net. Uh, there's 520-something episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Um, uh, what's it called? Instagram, words of friend. It's coopertalk1. Do that. Uh, go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. It was four years ago. I had the heart condition. and I got out. I wrote that cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're all easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. No long ingredients. So you go, I don't have that in the house. You just go. You look at it. You eat healthy, you feel better. You can buy it at Amazon.com, but if you go to StopTheSalt.com, 
I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So do that, please. So don't forget, follow me at Kirby Talk. Google John Eddie. Go to his website, johneddy.com. Listen to some of his tunes. Listen to, even look up, look up Jungle Boy on YouTube and you'll go, wow, that's cool. So give it up for John Eddie. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. Have a great weekend.